Today we are talking all things social anxiety, how it developed and how it manifests in everyday adult life. We also give you some strategies and ways to help you conquer your social anxiety. Later on, we'll be answering some listener questions. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. I am Kat. I'm a registered psychologist. And I'm Amy, a registered psychotherapist. And together we are the Psychology Sisters. Very good. We are recording via Zoom today, so it might sound a little bit different in your ears, but we have managed to set it all up and we are not very tech savvy, but we've done it. Amy, how are you feeling? Look, I can't see anything on my computer today. My laptop has decided to... Um, have a little mind of its own this morning. So I'm just rolling with the punches at this stage. (laughs) It's having a little meltdown, your computer. You don't have much luck with technical stuff. I don't, I don't. And my laptop has, like, you know, it has been running very hard this week with Zoom meetings. And I think I've been on it about seven hours of the day just getting all my work done because everything is remote this week. So I don't blame it for having a little meltdown. It has had to work overtime. So if you hear an explosion (coughs) in the middle of this episode, Amy's computer has. (laughs) It's just self exploded. Also, um, if you hear a random man grunting and doing weights, Josh is outside our window doing some weights. So apologize to everyone for the background noises that you might hear. But we're doing our damn best, right? We are. We are. We're here. We're trying. Two psychos (laughs) sitting in our office, hoping to God that we can this as an episode all right my darling amy please tell me your pit and peak of the week so my peak you haven't thought about this i haven't see your face okay oh damn it i can't see your face anyway my peak of the week would be that i am on a little break at the moment because i work with children you're on holidays they're on school holidays yes now holidays look very very different at the moment to what they usually have, but that's okay. I like not having the extra workload. I can clean my house. I can pack because I have to move in four weeks and I can just organize. So it's good. And my pit is that I guess I'm in the same boat as everyone. So I don't like to complain, but just that ordinarily um, Easter long weekend and holidays would look a little mm. bit different uh but I guess I'm healthy um my family is healthy so I, I don't really have too much to to pit about <laughs> it's a strange weekend isn't it it feels very mm. different I mean usually it's a weekend filled with sunshine and joy and seeing family and friends and holidays but now it's essentially the opposite of all of those things staying inside it's miserable weather but we are safe which is the most important thing Katniss what is your <coughs> pit and peak my pit and peak well I think I would start with my pit I am getting low-key a little bit sick <laughs> um may have some symptoms of coronavirus <laughs> um no I'm feeling just you know when you you're on the verge of being sick for so long and you just never get sick mm. it's like that it comes and it goes you know, when you've got a chance to rest where it hits you, I have a sneaky mm. suspicion that this weekend it's going to hit me like a freight train. So that's cute. Um, my peak would be that, oh, well, I mean, I don't want to brag, but you and I are in a published magazine, my darling Amy. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> it was very, very cool to see that. We've done a few interviews before, but I think this was pretty cool because we got to have like photos done and we got to write about it and stuff. So that was very exciting. A little milestone for Psycho Sisters. Very exciting. 
All right, guys, we might jump straight into today's episode. Today we are talking all things social anxiety. So social anxiety, Amy, tell me about social anxiety. Okay, so social anxiety usually occurs in relation to social situations. Mm -hmm. So much like it sounds, um, whenever someone is you know about to go and socialize they might typically have a rising fear um and usually that's due to a negative you know interpersonal evaluation of themselves so yeah social anxiety is usually characterized by excessive fear of being scrutinized or judged in a social situation mm-hmm. um and yeah, a, a lot of the time it's basically just fear from interacting in a social sphere. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's, you know, it, it's the way that we differentiate it from normal anxiety or just that natural feeling of shyness or fear that we get when we, you know, for example, start a new job or when we meet new people or when we have to give a speech or something at work. So we naturally all will have this level of anxiety, this heightened level of anxiety, but for most people that will normally subside. So you might get comfortable in your new job, you might give a few speeches and get quite comfortable, or you might become friends with these new group of people. So naturally for most of us that fear subsides, but for people with social anxiety, this fear does not subside and the fear of being judged by other people might be so daunting that this fear may stop them from completing their job going out to meet friends or even going out at all. So this is something that we call social anxiety disorder or previously it was called social phobia. Also, just before we delve into it, it's really important not to confuse social anxiety with agoraphobia. So often they are very easy to confuse, but agoraphobia is fear of the external environment rather than the judgment from other people. Um, It should also just want to note that it's not shyness. It's not introversion or being introverted. And a lot of trauma disorders might have that characteristic of social withdrawal, isolation. So these generally seek solitude because they enjoy their own company. So the shyness, the introversion and trauma disorders, not because they're fearful of others for the most part. So just wanted to clarify, because I think when we hear social anxiety, it is thrown around quite a lot for someone who might be like, oh, I'm so nervous to meet my partner's new friends. You know, I must have social anxiety. So just want to clarify that's that's not it at all. I thought it would be important to mention how, you know, Social anxiety disorder or SAD manifests differently in different people. So we know that the brain itself is a social organ shaped by social interactions. So by nature, we do really care about what others say and think about us and how Mm. they perceive us. Our lives are quite literally dependent on it. Mm. So we know from an evolutionary perspective that our concerns are adaptive because we have learnt that by staying in a group that enhances our survival and success of reproduction. So this, you know, fear of negative social judgment kind of becomes, you know, pervasive in that it inhibits our ability to function. And we know that, you know, there are a lot of different characteristics that may differ from person to person with social anxiety as a result of fear from how others will judge us because we rely so heavily on how others perceive us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important to note as well that people with social anxiety, it's not that they don't want to go out and socialize. They still yearn for that human connection Mm. as much as the next person. It's that their fear 
overrides the need for connection and human interaction. So, you know, people with social anxiety, it's not that they hate the world and don't ever want to talk to anyone. It's actually the opposite in some cases that they, they do want that constant interaction. They're just quite fearful of the judgment that they might receive for it. So really good to clarify that if you're someone who doesn't experience social anxiety, because it's an easier stereotype to fall into that, oh, well, you know, they, my friend's anxious and has social anxiety disorder. Why don't they want to see me? You know, what's the big deal? They must hate me. So really good to just to clarify that. A hundred percent. And I think that's such an important, if not the most important thing to touch on when it comes to social anxiety, because everyone as human beings, we crave the company of others, but it's that real fear of being found out as almost like unlikable, like Mm. not having people like you um, or fear of coming across as boring or, Mm -hmm. you know, unintelligent, things like that. So like I said, it comes back to more of that, you know, construction of self, like how are others going to perceive me? And I will always remember I had a client say to me, she really struggled to engage in social interactions. But once she did, she realized it was the thing that she really needed. Mm. So that insight led to her, you know, trying to like interact more, but it would always be this, you know, going back and forth to really, really fearing how other people were going to perceive her. But knowing that once she had spent mm. time with friends, she felt so much better. Yeah. And and I think when you do take that uncomfortable leap of trying to socially interact with others, even though it feels really, you know, just yuck, it feels really fearful, you start to dispel the fears and the judgments you had in your own head. So you start to think, oh, this wasn't actually quite as hard as I thought it would be, or no one's judging me. No one's pointing at me and laughing at me and saying I'm an idiot. So I think Mm. that the more that you do take that really big step and start to interact and socialize with others, the, the more frequently you do it, the more likely you are to move through it and to start to challenge those judgments and negative beliefs you have in your head. I think that's something that I definitely want to touch on a bit later with dealing with social anxiety and how to kind of cope with it because it is quite debilitating. I mean, with any anxiety Mm. disorder, it's extremely debilitating, but the more that you stay at home and withdraw and isolate, the more likely you are that you you will stay within this socially anxious state and you won't ever want to move through it. And I also did want to touch on that if you have social anxiety, like any anxiety disorder, there's a good chance that you'll never be 100% cured of it. But what's really important to note is that you will come up with strategies and you'll come up with ways to rationalize your thoughts and be able to kind of sit with your social anxiety, sit with the uncomfortableness and awkwardness of it and be able to interact with it um, and tell it to kind of shush. I always say that to my clients, especially working with kids. It's like, it's always going to be there, but you have the option of how big and small you want it to be, how big of an impact you you want it to be in your life. So really important to note that as well. I, I don't want people going into this podcast thinking, sweet. I want to be cured and I want you to wave the magic wand <laughs> because, you know, that that's generally doesn't happen. So just wanted to touch base on that with you guys as well. Okay, so I did want to touch on the differences between someone who is generally pretty shy or introverted and someone who has actually been, has a diagnosis of social anxiety disorder. I do like to outline the diagnostic criteria because I think a lot of people that do listen to episodes on mental health they might try and get stuck in that cycle of self-diagnosing so just want to read this out really quickly just to give you guys an idea of insight into what a diagnostic criteria of SAD would look like so 
I'll go through the main characteristics. As we said before, the first most important one is the fear or anxiety specific to social settings in which a person feels negatively judged. So if they feel noticed, observed or scrutinized, as we said, that could be a first date, a job interview, meeting friends for the first time, giving a presentation or speaking in class. And in children, the presentation will be a little bit different. So it'll be a presentation of stress, of Um, crying, of total withdrawal, of absconding, so just leaving a situation completely. Um, The second huge characteristic of SAD is that the individual will fear that they will display their anxiety, so they might feel that people will know that they're anxious, and as a result, people will reject them for that. So they will feel like, oh, they know that I'm, I'm really worried, or I might make a fool out of myself, and they're going to reject me. So that's a really big common cognitive distortion that a lot of people with SAD will generally feel. Um, Another one is that social interaction, while it is normal for people to feel a little bit of worry and anxiety when they first meet someone new or go for a first date or things like that, the social interaction will consistently provoke distress. So if you start a new job, it will consistently be stressful for the next few weeks, months, even years. Whereas for most people that will naturally subside after a few weeks or months. So definitely. And we can see that physically, like a lot of people will display physical symptoms like, you know, not wanting to make eye contact, um, having invariable experiences of that, those fight or flight symptoms like, you know, heart racing, sweating, trembling, trouble concentrating and all those kind of physical symptoms as well. Yeah, absolutely. And there was one that also I thought was really interesting is, with social anxiety, you would you, there's probably there is a stereotype that someone with social anxiety will either not say anything at all or will just not want to speak at all or will get really anxious and just freeze. But I also do notice that people with social anxiety, they actually overcompensate, so they word vomit. They don't like awkward silences, so they'll try and fill it with whatever they can. So that's a really big characteristic of social anxiety too, is that real mm-hmm. talk and talk and talk and talk because you're trying to avoid an awkward situation. 100%. And I've also noticed that a lot of people that struggle with social anxiety can be mistakenly labelled as snobs or mm. misinterpreted as people um, thinking, other people thinking that they know everything because they do tend to be overly expressive and kind of word vomit, like you said, have that verbal diarrhea and, and other people can often interpret Draw. that as, yeah. Or can be really dismissive or can be really avoidant and might ign- you might think that they're ignoring you, but that can also certainly be a symptom of sad is that, oh, I don't know what to say, so I won't say anything at all kind of presentation mm. you get with, with some people. Um, another really big characteristic of sad is that the fear and anxiety that you feel about a situation is disproportionate to the actual situation. So if you are going for a, if you've got a speech you need to make in front of your colleagues or student or your class or whatever, if you are someone, I mean, it's natural to be a little bit shaky and trembly and to really not want to do it. But I guess the unnatural side of it might be that you just would rather fail the class and give the presentation. You just Um, you might call in sick. So that would be a real disproportionate reaction to the actual situation so that the, your reaction doesn't actually match the stress of the actual situation. So really good to remember that one as well. Um, Mm -hmm. I think one of the last ones I want to touch on, there is a few more, but if you guys are interested in knowing the actual diagnostic criteria, please don't self-diagnose, but if you are interested, please just 
Google DSM-5 social anxiety disorder. The last one I did want to touch on was that this, like many other disorders we talk about, if it impacts on your personal life, your your job, your hobbies, if it stops you from, yeah, if it stops you from doing your normal, participating in your normal daily life, then that's certainly something that is quite concerning. So they're really the main ones I wanted to touch on with the diagnosis. Um, I did want to note also as well, because I didn't, I don't want to freak people out in case they're listening and they're like, oh my God, I feel exactly like this. The social withdrawal and isolation, which most often accompanies depression can also look like features of social anxiety disorder. Also body dysmorphic disorder can also result in social withdrawal and avoidance but that doesn't mean that you do have social anxiety because that's more of a wanting to kind of stay home because you are embarrassed about a body part rather than you're worried about the judgment from other people um autism can also look a lot like social anxiety disorder also personality disorders can look like social anxiety disorders because they generally do want to withdraw from social activity because they don't like the people that they're around rather than they're worried about the judgment so just wanted to touch base there are a few other disorders that maybe um have a bit of a comorbidity or maybe are misdiagnosed with social anxiety disorder so just be really mindful of that and if you do think that you do fit some of the criteria be really helpful to go and see a therapist as well who can help you along with that so please don't self-diagnose guys I know it's you think it might be easy to do and it might be helpful but it's actually not very helpful to google (laughs) your symptoms yeah definitely I think SAD is highly comorbid with other anxiety disorders and also people that experience social anxiety do tend to typically have lower self-esteem and be highly Mm. self-critical. Also, it is more common in females to have a fear or or have have those traits, I guess, that are associated with SAD and social anxiety is more associated with an impaired ability to relate to others. Mm. Um, I've noticed in my clinical work that those who have... um, I guess, trouble with interpersonal functioning, whether it be in friendship relation, like friendships, uh, family relationships or romantic relationships, uh, it is more common to experience social anxiety if you have interpersonal functioning Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, I 100% agree. So four-fifths of people who are diagnosed with social anxiety will have a comorbidity with another disorder. Most likely they'll um, have for example, uh, the presentation of normal generalized anxiety disorder, any other anxiety disorders followed by uh, a mood disorder. So, you know, when, if you do have social anxiety, there's a good chance that you do have the traits of another disorder as well. So I did want to talk about the lesser known triggers of social anxiety. So it's not just doing a big speech. It's not just going on a first date. It can be really small things like making eye contact, eating, drinking, or doing anything in front of other people, saying no to someone that can cause some real social anxiety. I know it does for me. I know it does for both of us. I am saying no. Um, Sending text messages, asserting boundaries, reading aloud. So those small things, they can really trigger some, some social anxiety as well. I think that just comes back to 
fear of judgment, like how other people mm-hmm. are going to perceive you or what you're saying. I know, and I'm not saying I have social anxiety, but I've definitely felt a little bit scared. You know, sometimes when you're sending a text message and you're worried about how that's going to be interpreted or mm-hmm. again, like even sometimes with this podcast, when we were first starting out, I would worry about how mm-hmm. I would be perceived yeah. um, and, you know, how people would would judge as you know people who knew us previously or separate from Personally. being clinicians mm. yeah even people who didn't know us as, as clinicians so what I guess on that topic aims what is something that you like has dispelled some of that fear I think a lot of it has to do with self so I think like any type of anxiety not treatment, but any kind of anxiety strategy. It's about looking at the evidence. Like has anybody ever said anything Mm -hmm. um, or have I ever heard anything that kind of proves how I'm feeling? Yeah. And is it a rational thought or is that, you know, my fear of perception and does that maybe stem from my own sense of self and Mm. maybe looking at at how I, I was feeling around myself rather than associating it with perception of others. Yeah, I think that's good. And, and I guess I remember having this conversation with you, Ames, when we were just starting and, and we, we say this in our practice as well, is that what people think of you has got more to do with them than it does you. Mm-hmm. So it's really as, as much as it is you are kind of working on the strategies for yourself, it's also really good to remember that people's reaction to you says a lot more about them and what's going on in their life because you might have hit an insecurity that they have or it might be a jealousy thing or it might be, you know, maybe you've reminded them of their mom or someone like that. So it can be really interesting to look at it from the other perspective as well. And when we talk about treatment for social anxiety, that's someone I always do try to remind my mm. clients is that people's reaction to you is a lot less to do with you than what, than what people think. And that can be really freeing to remember that. Definitely, definitely. And I think well, for me personally and for clients that I've worked with, if you've ever experienced bullying or if you've ever, Mm. I guess, had a history of prolonged conflict with peers, I think that almost creates an internalised perception that you're not likeable, that people don't like you. So Mm. sometimes that can be a little bit challenging to overcome as well. But 100%, like Kat's saying, it's about thinking, well, that probably says a lot more about that person or that's probably, you know, it, it just kind of reiterates that that person is uncomfortable with whatever you're doing and that's their problem, not yours. Yeah, it's triggered something in, in them. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So really good to remember that as you, if you are someone who does experience social anxiety, that their reaction is not your responsibility, nor is it, nor is it you have to take ownership of it. It's something that they need, need to work on as well. Social anxiety is very similar to anxiety where it gives you that really yuck feeling. And generally it is quite an uncomfortable feeling to be sitting with. So so you might experience symptoms. It's it's quite honestly quite identical to your normal anxiety symptoms. There's really not much change because the physiological response is the same as anxiety. Your body is still thinking that there's a threat and that threat is the judgment. So you'll have your classic trembling, sweating, heart palpitations. You have that fear, that overriding fear that something bad is going to happen and you need to just get out of the situation. You might have nausea, diarrhea, have those an increased negative thoughts. So the more that you're in that situation or about to approach that situation, the more likely you are your brain to be going into overdrive saying, no, don't go, don't do that. No, you'll, you'll look like an idiot. You'll be silly. So 
the thoughts that you have approaching the situation during the situation and after the situation are intensified um, because your brain is, is doing its best to protect you. I also recommend here that if you've not, if you don't know much about anxiety or you haven't, you know, learned much about normal anxiety, really important to get a bit of a good knowledge of anxiety before you kind of start to know about social anxiety, because they do work with really similar processes in the brain and they do have quite similar function as well. So we've done an episode on anxiety and there's heaps out there, but it's really good just to have that knowledge as well of, of how anxiety presents in the body. Mm, definitely because there is that yucky feeling because it is a yucky it's an uncomfortable feeling it's not a lovely pleasant feeling in the anxiety it's you know the sweatiness the increased heart rate we generally as human beings we'd like to just get rid of that feeling as quickly as we can we generally aren't well versed in just feeling through the yucky feelings and the uncomfortable feelings so what is something that we might do as an unhelpful coping response to social anxiety and it's very evident when you might go out with some friends is we would generally see an increase in drinking and drug use because what that is, I mean, for some people, not for all people, some people just do it for recreationally, but for some people with social anxiety, what that can be is a really good tool to decrease that feeling of yuckiness and to kind of release some inhibition. So drinking is certainly a really, it's very unhealthy coping response, but it's something that with, for people with social anxiety, I've seen it personally and professionally with friends that I know and also clients, they're more likely to drink because it's, Firstly, it's good. it's to have something in your hand. I mean, it makes you feel not as awkward. It's like kind of got that, you know, that tactile. Some people just feel silly not having anything in their hand when they're out with friends or not having anything to do. So drinking is just really good to have something there as well. Also, if everyone else is drinking, it allows you to feel like you're belonging and you're connecting to what everyone else is doing as a shared experience. Yeah. And with social anxiety disorder, the last thing you want to do is feel left out. So essentially like standing out like yeah. everyone else is drinking and you're not. Yeah, yeah. So drinking, it works in a few ways, but it can certainly start to reduce those feelings of anxiety. I mean, obviously, as alcohol hits your system, you do have those reduced inhibitions and reduced anxiety. It does relax. It can relax your body a little bit as well. Especially if you feel like you're boring, like if you're worried that you're not going to be fun, if you're worried that you're not going to be as entertaining. Like Kat said, usually alcohol brings out our inhibitions Mm -hmm. and we can tend to feel a lot more confident. It's it's a little bit of fake confidence, but it does make easier to be that life of the party yeah it makes it easy to start conversations to keep the conversation going you don't feel you're not as in tune to the awkwardness when you're a little bit intoxicated you don't really notice anything the awkward silences it can be super helpful for people with social anxiety certainly not recommending it it is certainly an unhealthy coping response but it's very normal for people and also drug use as well same thing any substance abuse as well so that's something that just kind of helps people to get rid of that feeling. And you might have friends or you might know someone who is very socially anxious and they're more likely to get extremely drunk, extremely intoxicated. They go the other end of the scale because their anxiety is like, I've got to keep drinking or I feel really awkward with nothing in my hand. So I'll just go get another drink. So really um, normal (laughs) appearance of social anxiety disorder is that. And that can kind of go the other way as well. So if you're someone that is always known as the life of the party or someone that is known to be, you know, that drunk, messy one that's really funny and, you know, is always down for a good time, you might feel anxious about not drinking in that situation because you're not kind of living up to that perception of how others, you know, kind of enjoy you when you're out. Yeah. So I think if 
you know, when you're not drinking and, you know, you don't get that same reception of, you know, being really fun and being really funny and being a good time, it kind of reinforces that, oh, well, to be liked and to be fun and, you know, to Mm. kind of make other people laugh, I need to drink. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's also where a lot of self-deprecating humor comes into it. Sometimes Mm. a really, um, a really good way to diffuse the awkwardness and to make let go of the yucky feelings is to disguise your anxiety with humor so you might want to break the ice with some self-deprecating humor or humor you know you might want to for example insult somebody else to kind of have some laughs as well that can be a really common manifestation in socializing is that use of humor whether it's self-deprecating or not to really you know break through the awkwardness and to break the ice a little bit as well Definitely. Um, So I did want to talk about where social anxiety develops. How does it develop? So Amy, I know you probably are very well versed in the trauma responses of social anxiety. So (laughs) can you please tell everyone a little bit about, I guess, the nurture side of things, the nature versus nurture side of things of um, social anxiety? Yes, definitely. So Social anxiety um, can definitely stem from attachment. So we know that our attachment is our early experiences that kind of create these little embedded maps or cognitive schemas. And they are our little internal working models that kind of are what we base our expectations and beliefs on and how we kind of relate to the world and to others. So they also give us our sense of feeling worthy of attention, care and support. And these internal working models also serve as a template for how we, for how we kind of develop those interpersonal relationship styles and they influence the way we experience and process and express emotions. So Because of that, any kind of environmental uh, experience that we go through as an infant creates that template and that having an anxious attachment style or an avoidant attachment style is very, very similar to the traits associated with social anxiety. So we know that behaviorally inhibited infants show higher negative affect than children who haven't experienced any adverse child experiences. Mm. So um, any unfamiliar situations create more anxiety. Any unfamiliar people are going to be a a trigger for anxiety as well because they haven't learned that it's safe to go and explore other relationships and things like that, even objects um, for children. So that's kind of how our environment affects that. So there are, I guess, in other words, our childhood kind of creates these social threat triggers and the development of um, some traits around social anxiety can be attributed to behaviorally inhibited protective mechanisms. Yeah. So a negative early attachment experience may foster the development of um, an anxious attachment, which then perpetuates that dysfunctional emotional regulation and heightens social anxiety symptoms so if you had a caregiver that was quite um i guess in was quite abusive in terms of verbal abuse or would insult the child a lot i guess yeah. that's there's a, just rejection like yeah. if say, say a child goes to hug their parent and that hug is rejected all those you know all those 
experiences kind of create this development, you know, and as a consequence, they kind of develop an an anxious relational scheme. Well, it's like if my parents who are biologically programmed to love me, don't love me, then there's a good chance that nobody else will. So there's a good chance that other people will (laughs) not love me either. So what's the point in trying? You know, if you're constantly berated or judged or insulted by your caregivers who are the ones that are supposed to love you, then there's a good chance that that will manifest in your adult relationships as quite anxious because you are like, well, what's the point in even trying? I mean, I I don't want to talk to people because they're just going to berate me as well because that's what I've been shown happens when you try to, you know, initiate conversation or affection with somebody. So what's the point? Definitely. So adults might then perceive themselves as being socially inadequate, um, seeing others as, you know, going to judge them or reject them like their parents did or see, I guess, social interactions in general as a negative experience. Like, and then they'll build up that perception that, or that association that if I go out in public or I engage in, you know, any kind of social setting, this is going to be a negative experience. Yeah. And when I was researching this, I found that a lot of studies have found the correlation with overprotective parenting style linking to a higher chance of social anxiety. So even on the other end of the spectrum where mm-hmm. it's not, you know, it's not uh, insulting or anything like that behavior, it's more of the overprotective, I care for you a lot because that's more teaching the child that nobody is safe and the world Definitely, isn't like safe. helicopter parenting. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. On, on both both ends of the spectrum, it's really um, <laughs> conducive to social anxiety. So it's really hard being a parent. <laughs> you have to get everything so spot on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so another thing I want to touch on was learnt behaviour. So if your parents were quite socially anxious as well, regardless of their parenting style, if they feared the judgment of others, there's a good chance that you will fear the judgment of others as well. So we learn that behaviour from our caregivers. So if your parents were constantly fearful of public situations or seeing their friends or making a big speech or if they were quite anxious and didn't like to make eye contact or were quite you know anxious around other people then there's a good chance that as a child you learnt that behavior and you will definitely exhibit that in your everyday relationships as well Mm. we often see that a lot in um well because I work with children and used to work with children, separation anxiety and mm. social anxiety uh, for children, parents that are often really anxious to leave their children at school, like even just saying goodbye to them at school, that kind of models that reaction, doesn't it? Or that response to feel anxious, you know, coming to school in a social setting and having to leave their primary caregiver. Mm. It's like, parents will say, I don't know why my child is so anxious. And then the, ch- the parent is extremely anxious too. So if mm. the child looks at their parent and thinks, if mom's not even feeling safe or if dad's not even feeling safe, then I'm definitely not feeling safe. Yeah, this I mean, is definitely not safe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> We need to abort <laughs> immediately. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. So another issue I wanted to touch on was just talking about the nurture side of things is there has been success, I guess, for pharmacological side of things of SSRIs, SNRIs and MAOIs, so they're different types of medication, so they can treat social anxiety. So that kind of suggests that there is that the dysregulation of the serotonin and also dopamine, their transmitters, they play a role in the dysregulation in the development of social anxiety. So really important to remember as well that 
when we are treating social anxiety, because there is these, um, the neurotransmitters are heavily involved with anxiety, that can be a really good pathway for treatment as, as well. So, but for treatment, it's always really good to have both pharmacological intervention, if appropriate, and therapy intervention as well. Both can work quite well together if you know it's looked into by a doctor so that can be really super helpful I guess on the nurture side of things but going into the nature side of things so obviously with like any mental health condition there is the different biopsychosocial factors that do intertwine and have an interplay with our life and and how this manifests in mental health disorders so so genetics I mean as we said before if your parents have social anxiety there's a higher chance that you will have social anxiety so you can have a genetic predisposition yeah yeah so it's really important to just like any mental health disorder there is that real interface and interplay between the nature versus nurture so really good to touch on that as well um i do notice in i guess my work aims i want to touch on this with you is social anxiety it's quite an unrecognized or it's quite a downplayed disorder people might misconstrue it or miss diagnose it or misclassify it as being shy or by just being a bit withdrawn or being an introvert. Um, people might dismiss people who have social anxiety disorder or they might say, look, you just need to suck it up. You just need to tough it out. And they, this can also stem from, you know, medical advice as well. So a lot of GPs might not recognize it. They might, there's just mm-hmm. a general lack of understanding about the severity and complexity of social anxiety disorder. And, and I guess some stigma as well. I know that we always are celebrating that stigma is breaking down with especially anxiety and depression, but there is still the stigma of social anxiety because if you have, you know, a very social life and you've got really supportive friends and really supportive family, you might think, well, you know, why should I be anxious? I mean, I've got a really good group of friends and family and I'm just being silly or I just need to suck it up. So it's really quite a, um, it's quite a hidden disorder, I, I find sometimes, because people don't really recognise how serious it is. Mm, really, I, I couldn't agree more. I think the complexity of social anxiety is underestimated because it relates so much to your sense of self and I think when you are you know as human beings we do it's all ebbs and flows we go through periods of time where you know our self-esteem might be really low and if you already have a genetic predisposition to experiencing social anxiety or anxiety or depression as we mentioned there is a high comorbidity between disorders and you know you have also experienced you know you might have an anxious attachment so Mm. as I've said before um, our ability to connect with others is a fundamental you know need to function normally and when that's inhibited due to experiencing something like social anxiety Mm. I think it can be extremely debilitating and it can impact someone's life quite significantly so for example you might really not like the way you look and that might make you really really anxious so you say okay I'm not going to see anyone this weekend so then you're isolating yourself Mm -hmm. um, you're alone with all these really negative thoughts ruminating and that could plunge you into you know a a pretty deep depression Mm -hmm. and next thing you know like it, it could you might take a day off work and then that day off work you know you might say well maybe I don't look sick and everyone might judge me because they think I'm a liar or I was faking it and do you know what I mean so it yeah. can really snowball something yeah. quite seemingly simple mm. can 
actually lead to a really, really significant impact on someone's life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if those if those negative thoughts aren't challenged and if they're not really recognized and that person is very vulnerable to isolating themselves and really, you know, if we're alone with our thoughts, that's one of the most dangerous Mm. things, especially now we're in self-isolation because it's an incredibly vulnerable time for people's social anxiety disorder. And I was actually thinking about this as well with this episode aims is it'd be really interesting. The, heightened levels of anxiety once isolation is over because once you've got more time at home you are not practicing those social skills you haven't conversed with anyone really other than your family or your partner that is more likely I'm probably guessing that people once they start to go back out will actually feel a lot more anxiety than normal to see their friends like even if you don't have social anxiety disorder there is a bit of if you haven't seen someone in three to four or six months you do have a natural kind of anxiety to see them again and just to because you haven't seen them in so long so I can imagine for people with social anxiety disorder that would be times 10 that would be really exacerbated because it's oh I haven't seen them in so long I forget what are some things I should say or what should I talk about or are they looking at my pimple or you know it can really if you don't practice it a lot it really makes people quite vulnerable to spiraling and snowballing as you said Mm. um so Ames tell me about some treatment so if you had a client with social anxiety what are some things that you might start to look at and work through so my treatment styles are a little bit different to what yours might be I know you tend to practice not all the time but a little bit um more so being a psychologist under the CBT framework which is super super effective for pretty much all anxiety disorders but something that I might do a little bit different to um CBT approaches like you know reframing negative cognitions and challenging anxious thoughts and that kind of thing is doing a little bit more work around self and Mm. attachment so where did these perceptions Mm. come from what was your relationship like with your parents um and I guess how did you kind of develop your interperson interpersonal relationship models and I will go a little bit more um and that's where it's really individually based I will go a little bit more into that individual experience how they've learned to process and express emotions and then how that might be impacting on things like social anxiety Mm, and I guess the construct of their identity would be really helpful to yeah. explore. And I think we'd probably both explore that because that really seems to be the basis of their social anxiety is what what do they think that they, you know, their identity is what they feel most judged mm. for. So let's look at that. What is it about your identity that you're so fearful of judgment about? I think that's... Um, definitely, definitely. Something practical that I tend to do um, that is that can be effective is... One of the things I think people with social anxiety really struggle with is not knowing how to start conversations. Mm. So um, so like a practical strategy that we might do is we might sit down and think, okay, it's like, what are some good conversation starters? What are some good icebreakers? Because it can be a little bit anxiety alleviating to know that, okay, like I've got some icebreakers up my sleeve. I've got, you know, some conversation starters that I feel confident walking into a room and being able to have a conversation with someone, things like that can be helpful as well yeah absolutely and practicing yeah those conversation starters and having fun with it I mean you can kind of start to ask some really you can start off with a very normal chit chat but I know I've said to some clients as well like I think you mentioned this in a previous episode Ames or when we're talking about things like if it was your last meal on earth what would you eat 
So having, yeah. having yeah. fun and making it really exciting and creative because if it's a, an engaging conversation, a funny conversation or creative one, you're more likely to engage with it and so is the other person and you're more likely to be able to talk a lot about it. So really avoiding those short answers like, um, how are you today? <laughs> That's really good. Mm. But you or how's work? Yeah, but it's mm. you won't get much response. It, you have to kind of keep thinking of more responses. But if you have more of an open question, it does initiate that interaction and does get that other person thinking and asking you questions as well. So that's a really good um, tip as well. I would certainly, I think in my practice, and I have done this previously and it's wonderful. So exposure therapy is really, really helpful for social anxiety. So um, I know of some therapists, which is so cool. I really want to try it one day, who it's almost, they start to go out in public with this person and start to do those behavioral experiments. So slowly exposing the person, ex- exposing you to those feared social interactions and looking at also worst case scenarios, you know, so if you were in this social situation, you might think, oh my God, I look like a total idiot and everyone's staring at me. But when you eventually start to expose yourself to these situations, you might, your therapist might prompt you to say, well, look around. Is anyone looking at you laughing? Is anyone even looking at you? But I found that to be super helpful because it is really just involves a confrontation of real life situations. And you can start it off as just role plays in, in the office or if you know a friend or anything, you can also do this where it's let's pretend that you're giving a speech. Let's practice. I'll be the audience. So and start off quite gently and then eventually work your way through to exposing them to the real situation and seeing how they respond and having support for them as well is really, really helpful. So exposure therapy is wonderful for social anxiety, but it does need to, <laughs> you can't just throw someone to the deep end, you know, it does yeah. <laughs> take a bit of time. Um, one, so as, one thing I did with a client that's really similar to that is we wrote a list of hierarchy. So what would be the mm-hmm. worst possible social setting for her to be in? Mm-hmm. Right, right down. From, so like from 10 to one. And then we worked on maybe like, what would one be like and exploring that? And I remember the next session she came back and she said, oh, I, I went and got a drink by myself. Like, so yeah. Hers was more going into public spaces, so like shopping centres, cafeterias, things like that. And she, again, she's a child, but she said that she was able to go and get a drink out of a public fridge Mm. and just being in that social setting. And I think developing a new association that is Mm. positive is really powerful as well. So she learnt that she could go and get a drink and no one was judging her. Nothing bad happened. She wasn't Mm. criticized. Um, There was no negative consequence for that. And so then that built up her confidence in that, well, I can go into a cafeteria and have a positive experience. There's nothing to be scared of. Yeah, exactly right. And I think exposure therapy, it's based on the assumption that avoidance of that situation that is fearful, it's one of the primary maintaining Mm. factors of social anxiety. So by avoiding a social situation, you're actually perpetuating the idea that it's uncertain safe and you'll get judged but the more that you try to link those new associations with the environment the more you start to challenge those negative thoughts whether it's unconsciously or consciously and you start to really change the way your brain thinks about these environments because as you said you'll think oh actually it wasn't so bad today or it was Mm. a bit weird but it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be so um and the more you practice it the more okay with it you are exactly exactly so going back another thing that could be super helpful is 
cognitive behavioral intervention. So as Amy said, or cognitive restructuring. So one thing that I do that's really helpful, I won't go through all the things, but one of them I find really helpful that people can actually do at home is worst case scenario. So what is the worst case? If someone laughs at you and judges you, what's the worst case scenario? Oh, okay. Like they'll laugh and judge you and then they'll probably forget about it in a day. You know, is anyone getting hurt? You know, are you still going to survive? Because chances are, if you've survived before someone judging you, there's a good chance that you're going to keep surviving. So (laughs) a lot of people who do kind of look at it in that way, it's more of a very logical way to look at things. Because I think sometimes with social anxiety, our our thoughts are, we're alone with our thoughts so much, they start to become irrational and not true. And we don't have anyone to catch us and say, actually, that thought is actually incorrect and irrational. You know, we get so in our own heads about the judgment that we might have from others that we forget get to kind of step back it's really hard to step back and look at it from a a very rational point of view so having someone to check in with you about your thoughts is really helpful so yeah what's the worst case scenario oh okay someone will judge you is that really the worst thing that could happen in your life really (laughs) um Mm. and I'm sure people have judged you before and you know you've survived so really playing on their strengths previously and and what they've gotten gone through to you know make sure that they have some more rational true thoughts you know challenging those cognitive distortions so um for example you might think oh oh my god i don't want to do this speech i'm gonna make a big fool of myself i'll probably trip over i'll look like an idiot and everyone will laugh you can really tell that you're snowballing and you are blowing things out of proportion but when you take a more realistic look at that thought you could say you know what I might look like an idiot and that's okay, but probably only one or two people will notice and that's not so terrible. So really challenging those thoughts can be super helpful. Another way that can be super helpful, um, it might sound a little bit silly, but if you are someone who's fearful of what other people think of you or um, what you look like in a social situation, making private videos of yourself. So you might think, oh God, they can see me sweating or they can see me trembling. But when you start to film yourself, you probably start to notice that nobody can see those small things that you're worried about. Um, And that can really start to change the way you see people thinking. Because, you know, Ames, when you look in the mirror and you think, oh God, like, especially quite common with BDD, you think, oh God, like I look so big today or I look so sweaty or I just don't, I feel really blah today. Whereas it's something that nobody else would notice. So, you know, having that film can be a really good idea. You can only, you don't, you don't have to show anybody, but you can just do it with yourself and, you know, seeing how you look on film is probably not as bad as what you're thinking in your mind. So that could be a really cool trick. Yeah, definitely. And I think that ties into to developing, more self-awareness and identifying your triggers in social situations or for social anxiety so you know what what are some things that really trigger Mm. those those social anxiety traits is it any public sphere is it around certain people um, that make you feel a certain way, like that make you feel insecure about how you look or that make you worry about um, whether you'll be perceived as boring or dumb like who are you anxious around Mm. and what is the insecurity what what is the negative thought that you have about yourself and I think it's really important to be aware of those things be aware of those triggers Mm, absolutely because there are some with social anxiety I mean you you might not feel socially anxious all the time it might just be with a specific person Um, it might be with someone that you perceive to be better than you or more attractive than you or anything like that that can certainly be an insecurity it doesn't have to be every single person that you're anxious around so really important to Mm. notice those triggers it could even be people you don't even know it could even be strangers that might be a trigger for Mm, you definitely because I think comparison is a really key ingredient in social 
anxiety. I think for a lot of people that struggle with social anxiety, they may put even their friends up on pedestals Mm. and perceive them as being a lot better than them, being, you know, smarter than them, more attractive than them, more successful than them. And that can really provoke anxiety. Mm. Um, And it, 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 it might make you want to avoid hanging out with them or doing certain things um, around them because you worry about what they're going to think of you, that you're not going to be able to do it as as well as they can or if you're going out with them that you don't, you know, that you look unattractive in comparison mm-hmm. to them. I think that's a really key thing to be aware of as well. Yeah, and I think going back to looking at what you've done before because if there's a good chance that you've met with someone that you are insecure about before and you've hung out with them or you've seen them or you've just chatted to them for a quick minute. How did you do that? How did you survive that? Because if you use continue to use those skills, there's a good chance that you will be able to survive the anxiety that you feel or get through it. And it's not a nice feeling. This isn't something that you can just be like, oh, I'm fine now. You know, you'll always have that yucky, awkward feeling of anxiety, but you do, instead of trying to get into that fight or flight or flee, it's quite normal that people with social anxiety want to flee. It's actually feeling through the feeling, feeling through the discomfort, feeling through the awkwardness, feeling through the awkward side or the sweatiness or you know the awkward laughter as well because that is something that can really really help to get through your social anxiety because chances are if you've survived awkward settings and encounters previously there's a good chance that you'll continue to survive them if you just keep trying and practicing those social skills So another one that is super helpful is mindfulness. So mindfulness is a wonderful tool. I know we always harp on about mindfulness and relaxation and meditation, but it's a way that individuals can gain some distance from their worries and negative emotions. And I think mindfulness is really helpful because it forces you to see your worries as an observer rather than being part of your worries. So it's almost distancing and depersonalizing your worries. There's heaps of apps you can download for mindfulness. I downloaded Calm the other day calm's really good what's another one Ames you always talk about it's like talking heads or something or <laughs> smiling, smiling minds. minds yeah yeah so there's a lot of apps out there even um YouTube has a few so really recommend mindfulness training as a way to distance yourself from that anxiety definitely mindfulness is also super important because a lot of people that struggle with anxiety are always thinking about what's next, what's going, mm-hmm. you know, that we're, we're always overthinking about the future and the what ifs. Mm-hmm. Whereas when we practice mindfulness, we're drawing our focus back to the present, what's happening here and now. And it's great for developing that self-awareness that I was talking about just before in what's happening for you right now and how can you calm down that anxiety right now? Mm. Because a lot of the time when we are feeling anxious, we're like, and what, this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And when I go here, I'm going to have this conversation with that person and they're going to think this about me and it's going to be a disaster. Mm. It really just slows everything down and brings you back to the here and now and really calms our, our nervous system and that fight or flight response. Yeah. And when we are calm, I know we say this pretty much every episode, our thinking brain is switched back on and we're better, we're better able to rationalize those thoughts and those negative judgments that we have of a situation or of people. So really important that the first thing we do is really engage and calm our physiological responses down. So taking a deep breaths, doing that relaxation and then working through 
the next step. Um, and that can be a really good way to kind of decrease the awkward, yucky feeling that you have. It still will feel a little bit awkward, but you do need to move through that. So sometimes our social anxiety fears do come true. Sometimes we do embarrass ourselves. Sometimes others do judge or reject us. We're not saying that that's not going to happen. Sometimes we do create a bad impression. Bad things don't happen as often as we tend to think, though. And usually they never have a negative or lasting impact on our lives as we think that they will. So sometimes we do need to go through that judgment to realize and step back and think, oh, that was really painful and awkward and maybe really anxious at the time. But I actually haven't thought about that in a while. So if it happens again, there's a good chance that you will forget about it in a few weeks and it won't have such a big impact on your life as what it feels like it will. Yeah, definitely. I think something that I do with my clients to help with that is if they have recently been embarrassed or they have recently had, you know, a bit of an awkward social encounter, is this going to matter in a week? Mm. Is this going to matter in a month? Yeah. Do you think you'll still be thinking about it after a year? That can really help. And also reminding yourself that you're not perfect. Like there's no such thing as perfect as a human. We, we all make mistakes. We all embarrass ourselves. We all slip up from time to time. Mm. And if you're not failing, then you're not doing a good job at being human. So yeah. I think just being kind to yourself and reminding yourself that there's no such thing as perfect and we all slip up. We all embarrass ourselves and it's okay. Everybody fucks up. I had a client once and he had a bit of performance anxiety and a lot of our sessions I was showing him um, bloopers of because he really wanted to be a gymnast and he had that mm. real performance anxiety, social anxiety of what people would think of him if he made a mistake as he was up on the bars. Or the, I spent a lot of my sessions showing him bloopers of famous athletes mm. who had fucked up and he found that so helpful because we get caught in our own mind and think we need to be this perfect person and we forget to take a step back and realise that everybody messes up, even the smartest, the most strongest, most athletic, everybody messes up and we do need to mess up to grow. So the more that you get yeah. used to that gross, yucky feeling of messing up and feeling judged, the more likely you are to survive through it and get used to it. And in a few years, if you can keep feeling through it, then it won't even be a, it'll just be like, oh, whatever, like, <laughs> No big mm. deal. You just got to feel through it. Just look back and laugh. Like, oh, I remember that time. Yeah. <laughs> I made a fool of myself and everyone yeah. laughed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And generally it does kind of decrease with age. I mean, as we're younger, we do have that real insecure identity and we're quite low in our self-esteem. But as we get older, I think we generally, for most people, tend to feel a little bit like, oh, well, <laughs> that's life. Mm. But yeah, as I said, if you are someone who's socially anxious, please touch base with a therapist who will be able to support you in your social anxiety you're not crazy you're not weird I mean it's very common so one in ten people do experience social anxiety so completely normal if you feel like this you just might need someone to check in with you and support you through your social anxiety mm, and I think this is a really strange situation currently to be in mm. even if you haven't experienced social anxiety before I know I've been talking to a lot of clients and a lot of my friends that are really struggling in social isolation at the moment so you know, at the other end of the spectrum, you might be feeling incredibly anxious about not being able to see people mm. and, you know, having that kind of really uneasy feeling that might be provoking a bit of anxiety. So knowing that just because you've never experienced anxiety in relation or in association to uh, socializing before, that it's completely normal. I think there's no right way to be feeling at the moment we're all unique individuals and we respond differently 
in social settings. So I think that even if you're not directly impacted by what's going on at the moment, there is absolutely no harm in reaching out and talk Mm. to your friends about how you're feeling. I had a conversation with a few of my girlfriends last night and it was really um, interesting to open up the dialogue around how we were all really feeling about about normal life being turned on its head. And I think a lot of people are really struggling at the moment and being able to talk about that with your friends is super, super important because we are literally self-isolating. We are Mm. literally, you know, and and that might be provoking feelings of being alone. Um, And a lot of people really, really struggle with loneliness. And Mm. I think it's important to to let your friends know that, hey, I'm really missing you. I'm really missing Mm. our normal catch-ups. Like um, what can we do to kind of you know, create some normalcy in this really abnormal situation. Yeah. And I think also, as we were saying before, it's, we can expect a bit of a spike in anxiety and social anxiety, even a bit of agoraphobia. I'm predicting when the isolation kind of starts to die down a bit, because as I was saying before, it is a bit awkward to see your friends in person or see people in person or even work colleagues when you haven't seen them in a while, you know, how it's a bit like, Oh, what do we talk about? Where do we even start? Um, so really normal. If you do feel that, even if you haven't, if you don't have social anxiety, it can be quite a normal response. Once you start Mm. to see friends again, have a bit of normality, you can feel a bit of anxiety and that's completely normal normal and that's completely okay so hopefully some of these little tips are helpful if you are struggling at the moment yeah so please i will pop a few resources in our show notes and we'll um, put some more ways that you can seek help if you are feeling a little bit socially anxious especially at the moment really important to take advantage of um, telehealth so mental health care plans have now been approved for online counseling and things like that so if you do have a therapist or if you've been thinking about talking to someone now might be a really good time because fees for telehealth i believe are reduced so um, please take Mm -hmm. advantage of that now we have some questions Amy, hit me. Listener questions. Okie dokie. We've got a couple of really good questions, actually. The first question is, even when I want to initiate conversations, I physically can't. Any tips on how to overcome that? Yeah, so it would take a bit of social skills training. Sorry, I should have brought this up in some good skills, um, some good ways to treat social anxiety, but social skills training, just your basic social skills that we learn as a child and conversation starters, I think that would be super helpful to practice. We often forget those really basic social skills because our anxiety does tend to take over. So having some really good lines stored up. So um, if you've never met story them before, sharing. Yeah. yeah about a story. Yeah. yeah. Um, and just remember people love to talk about themselves. So if you're ever stuck with what to ask someone, ask them about their life. What do you do for work? What did you study? Um, do you have a partner? Just, you know, things like that. And then you can get into the deeper stuff like, What's your goals in the future? What's your 10-year plan? Do you like what you're doing? Are you happy? That's a really good one to ask people. Um, So, yeah, having just those little prompts, practice, rehearse it, rehearse it in front of a mirror, write it on your phone so you don't forget it. Really just helpful just to kind of start and initiate that conversation. Definitely. I I think that's great. I definitely be practicing conversation starters is a really good tip because the more you practice it, the the more easy it will be, the more okay you will be with starting a conversation. I would also recommend taking care of the physiological symptoms you might be experiencing as well. So this listener says they physically can't. Is that because shortness of 
breath. Um, you know, you might be experiencing some mental fog or brain fog. Um, that's really common with symptoms of anxiety or the trembling, the shakiness, the sweating. So looking after the physiological symptoms is really important as well, just so you are in a nice, calm state mm. to be able to start conversations. So like we mentioned before, practicing some mindfulness, some deep breaths, progressive muscle relaxation is really, really good as well. So it could even just be um, making a fist and squeezing your fist really tight for three deep breaths and then relaxing your hand. You can do that, you know, maybe in your, in your car before going to a social event, um, even curling your toes under really really tight and then releasing them, just getting used to that tensing and releasing and noticing the feeling of relaxation after you've been tense can really bring you back into the here and now and really ground some of those physiological symptoms. Yeah. And like, even just, you know, if you're feeling a bit anxious and you're in a public space and you feel like you just can't initiate a conversation, take a break, you know, just say, Oh, Mm. I just need to go to the bathroom. Can you just give me a second? Take a break. You don't need to, you know, be there at that moment. You don't need to respond to everyone so quickly. You're allowed to just take a little bit of a break um, go and calm down and really r- relax your body. And then in the in the bathroom, have a quick look at your phone. What should I say next? Okay, I'm going to use this question next. I'm going to practice it and practice it. So just some practical tips that you can use. Mm, great advice. Next question is, I can't stop comparing myself to my boyfriend's sister. Tools, strategies on how to stop doing this. Was it about your boyfriend's sister that you admire? What is it that you think is so different from yourself? going into exactly what it is that you're perhaps jealous about? Are you just wanting to be like her? Is it that she's better than you at something? Is it that she's more attractive? Is it that you perceive her to be a better person than you? What is it exactly? I mean, pinpointing what it is about this person that you're comparing yourself to and why? Because generally when we compare ourselves to someone, it's because we have an insecurity and we need to pinpoint exactly what that insecurity is. And once we start to pinpoint that insecurity, we can start to work through it. Yeah, I agree. I think doing, like I always say, some work on yourself, what what are you insecure about? And I think some strategies that might help with that is journaling. So if you can journal on days where you feel really low or on days where you're overly comparing yourself um, to your boyfriend's sister and what like Kat said what aspects are you comparing is it that you think um, she's more attractive than you she's funnier than you more intelligent and kind of working backwards from there might be helpful Um, some other tools and strategies might be practicing like we've mentioned in past episodes some neutral Mm self-talk or positive self-talk so neutral self-talk is just basically focusing on what's true about yourself to promote um, some development of self-esteem. So if you are really struggling with self-esteem and feeling confident within yourself, I would go back to focusing on what's true with some neutral self-talk. And even if you can work your way up to positive self-talk by maybe even practicing, um, if you are journaling or if you do like journaling, write down three things that you're really proud of, three Mm -hmm. things that you really like about yourself and just focus on on yourself yeah I think that's the, the biggest tool that you can do to kind of combat um comparison is is to not focus on someone else not compare you know your downfalls to their strengths just focus on you what are your strengths what are you doing really well which can be really hard to do it's much easier said than done but I think that is is a, a 
one strategy that can be useful in that situation. Absolutely. I think, you know, we do often tend to overlook our own strengths and mm. um, beautiful parts of ourselves when we're comparing ourselves to someone. So what is it that you have that maybe your boyfriend's sister doesn't have? So you might be really, really skilled in painting. You might have some strengths of your own and some talents of your own. And just remembering those, just looking at those and remembering that everybody is unique and different and you probably have some skills. She might have some skills that are greater than yours and you may have some skills that are greater than hers. So remembering that nobody's perfect as well. She's might not be perfect. (laughs) Um, And yeah, really pinpointing what it is that you're insecure about as well because that can really really help it's a tricky one it's a tricky one all righty as is this next question it's a little bit a little bit complex so oh gosh <laughs> improv we always just improv everything <laughs> we do um so this lovely follower says i have started seeing someone and i really like him however my brain is saying you aren't ready you haven't worked on yourself enough but i really like him so are you someone who classically doesn't, you know, doesn't hesitate to get into relationships or is someone that hesitates quite a lot to get into relationships? Look at the patterns before and look at why you feel like you might not be ready. So are you feeling like you're not ready because maybe your intuition is telling you there's something you don't like about this person? Are you not ready just because you feel like there's a bit more work that you need to do on yourself? Exactly why aren't you ready to move forward with this relationship? And also I do just want to touch on that. You might sometimes sometimes you're never ready for relationships <laughs> and sometimes you might need to just delve in and try but I guess it depends on what what's holding you back what are you fearful about of, of not being ready for mm. I also think it's important to remind yourself that there is no rush there mm-hmm. is no rush um, when it comes to progressing a relationship um they need to meet you where you are and vice versa. So if you're saying that you really like this person, what is the harm in taking things slow? Mm -hmm. When you find someone that you like, it doesn't mean that you have to immediately rush into Mm -hmm. a relationship. What is wrong with just enjoying time together and, you know, taking things really steadily and really slowly because you say that you your brain is telling you that you're not ready because you haven't worked on yourself enough. Is it possible that you could continue working on yourself while kind of establishing the foundations of a relationship with this person that you really like? I think when we meet someone we really like and who makes us feel good, we know that, you know, um, we get that release of oxytocin, we have fireworks, it makes us feel really good and we want to attach to it. We want to go in, you know, full guns blazing. But I think this is actually a really good sign that, you know, you're thinking pretty rationally and thinking pretty logically that, hey, I really like this person, but also maybe I'm not, maybe I haven't worked on myself enough. And I think that's actually a really really positive thing that you're acknowledging that while you like this person, there are also things um, individually that maybe you want to focus on too. And I think there's nothing wrong with doing both. Yeah, I agree. I think it's extremely insightful that you have recognized that in yourself. And it sounds like you do have this insight to be able to handle both. I mean, you could, what's the harm in also having a conversation with them as well about, hey, I'm just feeling like I need to work on some stuff on my own, but I really want to keep seeing you just so you're both on the same page. But yeah, as Amy said, I 100% agree. I think you can certainly do both. And, you know, we, it depends where your fear of, is coming from. It might just be a fear of, I don't want to get hurt again. Um, it mm. could be a fear of, oh, I'm not ready to 
go through that yucky breakup or I just, you know, it depends on where your fear is coming from in order to, you need to address that before moving forward. It could just be a fear of, oh, it's emotionally exhausting being in a relationship, but there are some times we do need to, we need to kind of risk it for the biscuit and give it a go. But I think just being crystal clear with this partner and just letting him know where you're at. Um, and yeah, just continuing that conversation with him. Definitely. And if you are struggling with mental illness, like if what you mean by I haven't worked on myself enough in terms of whether you are battling, you know, a, a mental health disorder, uh, I think it might be beneficial to seek the uh, not advice, but, you know, maybe to speak to a clinician if you are mm. seeing a therapist to work on yourself mm. um, or if you've got, you know, a trusted person in your support network um, that might be able to help you because I do understand that if you are, you know, kind of getting to a good place with battling mental illness, there is, you know, that little bit of what well, if I start seeing someone that I really like and things don't turn out how I want to, I then don't want to go back backwards I, I do get that as well so I think it's important like Kat said to have crystal clear communication you know make sure you're on the same page um, so that you don't feel any pressure to jump straight into a full-blown relationship but I also think making sure you have a really strong support system around you um, or that you're engaged with a therapist if you are battling a mental health condition and that's the work that you're worried about unraveling yeah yeah 100% Alrighty. I think that is all the time we have for today. It's been a bit of a jam-packed episode, but we hope everyone's going well in social isolation. And I hope that you continue to reach out to your support network. We do urge and encourage it. Thank you guys so much for listening. We will be back next time. Oh, I don't know what we're doing next time, Ames. Hmm. Maybe <laughs> we will. We have, we have like a whole book of ideas, guys. We but we get so excited whenever we have like a new idea or something comes up that we, we actually planned out all our episodes for the whole year and then we get derailed by these ideas that we have and then every week we're like, crap, so what, what are we going to record now? So, because I feel, well, I feel like there's this different feeling. I feel like we just go with what everyone's feeling mm. at the moment. I feel like we're pretty just trying to be quite intuitive to how everyone's feeling at the moment. And I know that people are probably sick of coronavirus and talking about the anxiety, but some people might actually want to hear about it. So we always are just quite touch and go. We do put up yeah. a lot of polls. So <laughs> um, we do have some great ideas, but we will certainly see you guys next episode. Um, we hope that the sound is okay. <laughs> it's been quite tricky, yeah. but we've done it, Ames. I'm very proud of us. I'm proud of us too. I literally can't see anything on my You've screen. You've done so well. So. You've just done this totally improvising. I'm very proud, Amy. Oh, <laughs> interesting to see back. Oh, you're a clever little thing. And we will speak to you next episode. Woohoo! See you next episode, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If you want to see more, please feel free to follow us on Instagram at The Psychology Sisters. To make sure that you never miss another episode, please hit the subscribe button in the podcast app. If you know someone who might enjoy this episode, we would love you to share this with them. Please note the content shared in this episode is purely educational and does not replace personalized advice from a mental health professional. See you next week for more spicy science and sexy self-help.